Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Kevin Dibley starts a new series entitled, All is Calm, All is Bright. Seven Bible passages that can bring peace and hope to the church in a time of chaos and uncertainty. For the last six Sundays in 2020 and the first in 2021, we're going to study the final seven passages of scripture that are part of our Church Fighter Versus Memory Program. We thought that in this time of chaos and uncertainty, the best thing that we can do is try to get God's Word deep into our hearts and lives. We are doing so that we might help each other be filled with peace and hope in these crazy COVID times. So, would you be willing to join us in this? Would you take up the challenge to memorize some or all of these passages? Would you be willing not only to finish 2020 by needing God's word into your heart and mind and life, but to jump on 2021 with comfort, encouragement, and hope of the scriptures? Today's sermon is entitled, From Groaning to Glory, Pleading That Pleases and Persuades God. Let's worship together. Well, would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 84, Psalm 84, and um, we are um, in a new series up until the first Sunday in January, just over the Christmas season in the series that we're in. I've called All is Calm, All is Bright, taken from Silent Night, and I'm actually taking the fighter verses that we have as a church and walking through them week by week. So one, to encourage you to memorize the word, and secondly, to give you some depth to the word, understanding, so that it's not kind of memorizing a a series of words, vocabulary, that have no substance to our soul. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the word that we're memorizing would actually become life to us and be used of the Lord on a regular basis. So anybody do Psalm 84? 10 to 12 or 10 and 11, I can get you started. For a day in your courts is better than what? A thousand elsewhere. I would rather be what? A doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is what? A sun and a shield. That's good. Isn't that great news? The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives what? Favor and honor. So I'll just stop for a second. We'll come back to this in a bit. The psalmist is rejoicing. He says, blessed is the one, blessed is the man who puts his trust in you. He's celebrating and he's contrasting the tents of the wicked uh, to the house of God. And uh, basically, he's comparing worship and wickedness. And he said, a lot of what we've done is we put our hope and our rest in what the world puts its hope and rest in. And when that has had the bottom fall out of it, he's found that better is one day in your courts. The grace that comes from worship is far greater than the supposed promises of sin. Isn't that true? Isn't that the testimony of every believer that you've tasted of sin's fruit? That's Adam and Eve. They've tasted of sin's fruit. What is sin delivered? It is not given. Sin is not a sun and a shield, friends. Sin does not give favor and honor. So as we come to Psalm 84, I want you to listen contextually to the psalmist. 
and then I'll introduce it to you, and I hope, like last week with um, uh, Psalm uh, um, 129, no, 79, Psalm 79 that we did, Psalm 79.9 is what we had memorized, that you have, and I gave you the language of lament last week, now I want to give you the language of worship. Isn't that helpful to have the language of worship as we go through times of trial and tribulation? The context is alienation, absence from worship. So for those of you at home, online, who are aching for worship, to be with God's people, may this text help you and become a a, a precious psalm to you. The psalms are meant to help you with the greatest uh, delights and discouragements of your soul. So Psalm 84, listen to this, and then let's spend a little bit of time this morning making it our own. Psalm 84. To the choir master is the introduction according to the Gittith, which said earlier, Andy says probably it's what? I mean, oh, you're going to... It's a harp belonging to the Gittites. Oh, it's a harp. Is it really? Oh, you've done the research. There you go. I was thinking he was going to say mandolin, because if it's good, Andy will say it's a mandolin. So... Um, A psalm of the sons of Korah, that matters. We're going to come back to that. So take note, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul long yet, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. See what's going on with the psalmist? Looking to the folks that are worshiping and longing to be worshiping with them. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, and each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Oh, I missed that in our memory verse earlier. That's right, I skipped over that. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Spurgeon says, earth contains no sight so refreshing to us as the gathering of believers for worship. Now, he says that as a confession of someone who has been changed, radically changed by the gospel, by God. Nothing is so precious to us as seeing God's people gathering in worship. And I think this is true when you get to the book of Revelation. How does the Bible end? The Bible ends with every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around uh, the throne of Jesus singing, worthy is the lamb. Have you ever worshipped in another language? 
Have you ever had the privilege of seeing other people groups worshiping the Lord? I can remember in the early morning, like 5.30 a.m., being in Cordoba, Mexico, in the cafeteria of a Bible college. We're all struggling in, half asleep, you know. We sit down at the table, and suddenly you hear the Spanish students who have come from the indigenous tribes of the mountain regions of southern Mexico begin to sing the songs. There's no bars and windows that goes out into the countryside. And I remember my my tears running down my face and looking around at all of the gringos with me (laughs) and as we're worshiping together and hearing the worship thinking there is nothing sweeter nothing sweeter than people who know Jesus and who love and worship him and so you and I need to see contextually what's happening in Psalm 84 Psalm 84 Derek Kidner says is says longing is written all over this psalm Longing is written all over the psalm. The psalm begins, Oh, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My soul longs to the point of fainting. You ever been hungry to the point of fainting? (laughs) Thirsty to the point of fainting? Tired to the, you know, the deep desires of physical, you can physically feel it. The psalmist is in a position as he writes this psalm where he is cut off from worship. He has had the circumstances. There's some debate, and I'll talk about this for a second. Who is the author of Psalm 84? It says, a song of the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah were Levites assigned to the worship for God's worship. But I'll talk in a minute and show you a text what I think is going on here. But there are some like Spurgeon and and, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who argued this is a psalm of David written about the sons of Korah. I think that's at least partly true. It could be that it's David, this is often common, when Absalom, his son, has rebelled against him. And David has been had to leave Jerusalem. And you know that story, the sad procession of David leaving Jerusalem because his son wants the throne. There's brokenness, there's sorrow, and here he is outside of Jerusalem, his son, a battle about to ensue, and in the sorrow of that, his longing, his longing is just not about the city and its citizens, it's about its king and its savior. He's been cut off from worship, and in the timing of it, it seems to be that he is, it's at a time of one of the great festivals when they would go up to Jerusalem, and he's remembering what it was like to go to worship. Do you remember, some of you, what it was like to go to worship? And not being able to go. Sometimes it's your physical health. Sometimes it's what's going on like now in the culture. There have been multiple reasons down through history that God's people have been cut off from the worship of God. But what's being celebrated in Psalm uh, 84 is that even when you're cut off from the worship of the living God physically, there is the possibility of worshiping with God in your heart and in your soul. Now it could be that this is actually written by the sons of Korah who wrote it in reflection upon David or in reflection upon their isolation in captivity. They're taken off into Babylonian captivity, cut off from Jerusalem, remembering what it was like to go up on the festivals. And again, some of you were doing this the last few days, right? The last few days. Thanksgiving was not like any other Thanksgiving for a lot of people. And you were remembering, you may do that anyway, you remember that grandma wasn't here this year. 
You remember something that she made that was special to your family. There's grieving and mourning that goes on for some of those things. Maybe it was the normal hustle and bustle of cousins and family gathering around and you've been cut off. Some of us are cut off geographically from our loved ones at this point in time. And as you're thinking about those things, you can smell the smells, you can remember the taste, you can picture the scenarios and the memories of all these things. And as they rush on, what does it do to your heart? Oh, God, I long for those days. Long for those moments. This is a longing of the psalmist towards, and and what's happening, it seems to me, this is why I lean towards at least wanting, this is what I want to preach. (laughs) You can do the hard work of deciding what it is. But I feel like this is David, the king, looking towards Jerusalem and thinking, here I am, the king, and I'm cut off. Here it is, calamity in my own household. I'm cut off from my own people. I'm out here. Oh, he begins to think about the gatekeepers, the doorkeepers at the house of the tabernacle. He thinks what it was like. He said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper than be the king. I remember Spurgeon once writing to pastors in his lectures to his students, and he said, never step down from preaching the gospel in order to become a king. That stuck in my head. What an honor it is to carry the name of the King of Kings. What an honor it is to have the freedom. So Psalm 84 is a psalm. I'm going to show you this in a second. It's a psalm written by someone who's thinking how fortunate it is for a doorkeeper to be able to be there. He's nobody. He's doing out his work in a way that people don't take notice. Um, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, when he preached on Psalm 84, called this, he called it this way. He said, this is the psalm of the janitor. And what he meant was that the, jan- the, 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 the doorkeeper was responsible for the, the functioning, the care, the kind of the unnoticed things. Molly, she, she came in um, today. So Molly, this is a psalm for you, right? Because before you came in between the service, Molly was busy disinfecting everything. She's here joyfully week after week without you noticing. We get to see her because she comes in the office and looks at my office, says, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to throw out, Kevin. <laughs> Do you have anything that you want to keep? You know, she comes walking in. But that's what he's saying. It's the doorkeeper. It's, it's, the, it's the gatekeeper at the house. Oh, I wish. They're worshiping. I'm a king and I can't go there. Now, just so you see that, go with me to First Chronicles chapter 9. So it's after Kings. Go back. First Kings. 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles chapter 9. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we get a description of the sons of Korah in verse 17. And this is historically, they're coming back from captivity, but they're being installed. They're being installed in light of what David did with the sons of Korah at the tabernacle when he set up worship in Jerusalem. So in verse 17, the gatekeepers... So this is the same idea, I would rather be a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper in the house of God. The gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, Talman, Ahaman, and their kinsmen. Shalom was the chief. Until they were in the king's gate on the east side as the gatekeepers of the camps of the Levites. Shalom, who was the son of Kor, son of Ebiasaph, son of who? Korah. These are the sons of Korah. 
and his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korahites, which were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, as the fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. So they guarded, they were security. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, was the chief over them. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshulamiah, the gate was gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen as gatekeepers at the threshold were 212. They were enrolled by genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel the prophet, Samuel the seer, established them in their office of trust. So they and their sons were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, that is, the house of the tent, as guards. So what was their role? Well, you don't know right now, but Ron Gentilizo is right there at the door. He was there early when you came in. He's there now at the back in our worship service. You probably didn't notice Ron there, back there. But you know what? That's what it was like for them. They had appointed men to make sure that the worship went smoothly. And, that, and most of the time they were anonymous and what the psalmist is doing, if this is David, he's going, man, here I am king and I'm cut off. Oh, that I was a doorkeeper. I would rather be, he says, out of his, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord so that I could worship God and delight in God and rest in God because the resting place for David is not in his kingship, but it's in his God. And the resting place for him is not in his establishing of his own security, but in his worship of the living God. That's what it is. So if you look at Psalm um, 84, you can divide it clearly into three sections. See the little word salah there? So those are musical breaks in the Hebrew Psalms. So you can break the Psalms into three sections. Psalm 84 reads like the Beatitudes. Remember the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he goes through. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He puts the list of blessings. That's how Psalm 84 reads. Each section talks about someone who's blessed. So if you look at the end of section 1, Psalm 84 and verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those who are worshiping. So there we get a description of what the psalmist is seeking and longing and savoring. It's the safe place for the psalmist. The temple is his happy place, his safe place. The worship of God, God is his safe place. That's what he's saying there. Oh, I would rather be a, a doorkeeper than being in the house of God than being surrounded by all the powerful men who are corrupt and fallen. Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. So whose safe place is in you, whose security is in you, and whose strength is in you. And he changes the direction of the psalm from being in the temple to being on pilgrimage. He's picturing what it was like going up to Jerusalem. And he goes, man, wouldn't it be great to be able to go up? There are sweet moments in going up with the people of God to worship that I've been cut off from. 
And then finally, if you go down to the end in section 3, the psalm ends in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. But right before that, he says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. What's he saying there? The Lord satisfies the deepest longings of my soul. What makes worship satisfying is the satisfying nature of the Savior. That's how the psalm breaks up. So the psalm is, blessed is the man who finds his safe place in the Lord. Blessed is the man who finds his strength in the Lord. Blessed is the man who finds his satisfaction in the Lord. So let's just make a few comments on that this morning. I think it's, isn't it great to have a psalm like this for COVID? I didn't plan whenever they planned the five years of memory verses that we would get here. This is a perfect psalm for Thanksgiving weekend in the middle of COVID when you're longing to be with people that you can't be with. In a place that you want to be, you're cut off from them. The psalmist says, oh, I long for this. So here's, here's the first thing I want you to see in this psalm. Thank God for that longing. In fact, I want to tell you that if you long to be with the people of God, even if you're cut off from them, there's a sweet blessing there. It's an indication of your salvation. And if you don't have this longing, you need to pray for this longing. Because this is a sign of your salvation, that you long to be in the place where God is appointed for his people to worship him. With the people around the provision of God. In them it was the sacrifices for us. Well, next Sunday it'll be the breaking of bread. It's the coming and, and singing and celebrating over the word and over Christ. Christ is the center point of our worship. So, so again, this... This text of Scripture, Spurgeon says that what this text reveals is that the call to worship is not external, but it's internal. It's not a Muslim call to prayer from the corners of a city where everybody in fear bows down. It is the Spirit in the heart of the believer calling them to willingly embrace and seek Christ and find the rest, right? That's the kind of worship God's looking. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. I can remember my conversion. When I was 13 years of age, I went to a worship service with a bunch of teenagers in the basement of a house in the north part of our town. And I, it was a Sunday evening, and we were singing. I have no idea what was going on. I assume it was a typical youth group meeting. People were poking each other in the eyes, laughing at each other, doing whatever teenagers do. And we sang and played the guitar and read the script. And that night, God fell upon me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He fell upon me. He said, you are mine. And I walked home alone in the dark. And I thought in my heart, I was made for worship. It was not an intellectual discovery. It was a conversion of soul. It was the change in my life. It was this God taking ownership of my heart. And so what's going on in this psalm is that the psalmist is talking about home, where his heart is at home. And his heart is at home in the worship of God. And he begins to look at those who can worship. And he talks about the doorkeeper. Oh, I wish I was the doorkeeper. It would be better to that than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And then, and then listen to what he says. Go to, go to this psalm. He says in, in verse 2, My soul longs, yes, faints. My heart and flesh sing for joy. Now notice what's going on here. 
He's sorrowing and yet singing. Aren't we able to do that? It's not the way it ought to be, but guess what? It, we're on our way to the way it's meant to be and it's going to be. And he's holding the struggle in. And notice what he says in the next one. Even the sparrow finds what? A home. Notice the language at the beginning. How lovely is your dwelling place. The sparrow finds a home. A swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my, God, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your home, in your house. He's caught up with the temple as being his home, the home of God. And he's going, the doorkeeper gets to go there. He's at home in the temple. The sparrow gets to go there. He's thinking about the altars, and he sees the sparrows flying around. Now, one of, the, one of the, the preachers on this text of Scripture, I think it was Boyce, picks up, and he says, why does he choose the sparrow, and why does he choose the swallow? And he says the sparrow was a symbol of kind of insignificance. So um, those of you who got here early know that today we have ice halfway across the lake, and this morning when we got here, there were 16 eagles. 16 eagles sitting on the ice out here, and they're going and catching fish, coming back out onto the ice, going and catching fish. So I go to everybody, come in, hey, did you see the eagles? We say to one another, hey, did you see the eagles? We had little kids here in the first service. We went out the door, and everybody started counting the eagles. Look at the eagles. If you came in on a Sunday, and I said, guess what? There are 16 sparrows on the bench out there. Come on and see the sparrows. Everybody go, he's lost his marbles. I mean, more than usual. Lost his marbles, right? You'd be going, so what? Why does Jesus say, not even a sparrow falls without him knowing? Because the least significant are significant to God. Amen. The nobodies, the nothings matter to him. So that's what James Montgomery Boyce says. The sparrows are the insignificant. The swallows represent restlessness. The and we get swallows out here all the time. And you go out there, one of the things about the swallows is, if you have a camera like me and you try to get a picture of a swallow, they don't sit still. They're just restless. And he's saying in this psalm, even the restless swallow can find a home with God in his temple. What is he doing? He's going, where is my heart at home? My heart is only at home. I would rather, I would rather be a doorkeeper who is able to worship God. I would rather be a swallow that nobody ever that's, has been restless who finally finds his rest in God. Listen to what Augustine said. He said, this is what conversion is like. This is how God gets. He turns your heart that your heart is only at rest when it's in worship of the living God. He says these words, you breathed forth fragrances and I drew in my breath and now I pant for you. I tasted much and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned with desire for your peace. In the heart of a true child of God, there is a longing to find your home in the worship of God. You've been made for worship. Isn't that good news? And there's no rest. That's what you're longing for. Friends, when you're struggling with all these things, that's how sin entices us. Sin only works because we're worshipers. 
And sin is only effective if it can offer to you the promise what only God can supply. Notice the language in the first stanza. The language is what? How does he describe God? Oh, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is talking about, some of your versions might say Lord of armies. It's the, the in Christmas time, the old language says, right? And, the, and, the, and suddenly there appeared before us a heavenly host. The, heaven, the Lord of hosts is the God over all the angels who come in with power and, and worship him in the heavenly place. That God who's worshipped in heaven dwells amongst men. That's what Christmas is, the incarnation. The only God who stoops down to become man so that he might lift men up to be worshipers of the living God. That's our God. The living God, the Lord of hosts, the living God, not the God of idols that enslave us, not your pornography, not your drug addiction, not your materialism that will enslave you and degrade you. This is the living God who gives life. Right? The source of life, the fountain of life. Blessed are you at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. He is the sovereign. He is the supplier He's the Almighty. Isn't that great news? That's the sign of God, a work of God when you long for that more. He's not longing for simply a building. He's longing for the God that building is oriented around. He's longing to be amongst the real temple. I hope you're longing for that. That's, first of all, what he's saying there. So that's good news. If you have that longing, that is of God. That's of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what I want to encourage you to do is savor the sweet and offering surprising joys of the journey. Fellowship in the hard places is often a sweet foretaste of the glory yet to come. Do you understand what I'm saying there? He sits here in this next section in the ne- after Salah, and it breaks from verses 5 and on. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In whose heart is, are the highways to Zion. And he begins to picture what it's like for them to make a pilgrimage at, at Pentecost or at, at a pilgrimage at the Feast of Booths or at harvest time, or at Passover, on their way up. It's not easy to journey up to Jerusalem. Sometimes it's hot. Sometimes you're going through wilderness places. But this is what he says. There is something sweet in the journey, as difficult as it is, that when you're with God's people who are focused on God, that make the difficult journey sweeter. This is crucial for us. This is why we long to be together and to reach out and serve one another. Because what he's teaching in this text of Scripture is, Spurgeon puts it this way, there are joys of pilgrimage which make men forget the discomforts of the road. Notice how he describes, so here's, here's one of the descriptions. He says, in their hearts are the highways to Zion. Anybody know the way to Grandma's house? If you ask me, to go to where my grandmother, who's been gone, back, gone to glory for a long time, you ask, Kevin, can you drive to your grandma's house today? I could get in there and you wouldn't have to give me a map. You wouldn't have to put out Google Maps because I got that memorized in my heart. I have memories. I have Thanksgivings and Christmases. I remember as a, 
There's an eight-year-old boy getting my first Timex watch at Christmas at Grandma Dibley's house. She gave me my first watch. I remember all the other kids running around, poking each other in the eye and playing games, and I'm thinking, I'm grown up. I got a real watch. Eight years old, I got a Timex watch. I walked around with on wonder, eight-year-old. Okay, okay, friends, remember, there were no phones and computer games back then. It was a watch, a real watch. I, I'm 100 years old. It was amazing. Walking, I can picture that. You know what? When there's somebody you love, then the weight of their house is in your heart. There's a, there's a GPS in your soul drawing you ever forward, calling you, becking you. And here he is out in the wilderness, cut off from the people of God, but he's tracing, he's remembering those sweet times when they made their way and they would hear over on that valley, across the valley, somebody singing, let's go up to the house of the Lord, singing Psalm 100, right? Let's go and give thanks for the Lord, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. They could sing. Marianne and I were watching an episode of The Crown where Queen Elizabeth um, didn't go to Wales when there was a huge catastrophe in 1966, a mining disaster that came down the mountain. The mine collapse came down the mountain and crushed a schoolhouse, killing 144 students and she didn't go and she didn't go till eight days later after the press went after her and she went and came back and they were talking to her everybody had gone um um, princess margaret's husband went staggered and then prince uh, prince philip went and and prince philip came back before she went she's talking to him and she said she said how did you feel and he looked at her and said what kind of question is that they had they had a trench, I forget how long, of caskets. She said, he, said, he said, any, this is what Prince Philip said in the crown, he said, any person would, who, because she said, what did they do? He said, they did something you'd never expect, they sang. And he said, if you would have heard, they sang a hymn. He said, if you would have heard them sing, no person, he said, any human being would have had their hearts shattered in a thousand pieces. So she flies in, goes and meets the parents, meets some of those who had survived, those who had lost their children and their grandchildren. She comes back and then she talks to the prime minister at that time. He says, how did it affect you? She said, they got a picture of me dabbing an eye. She said, there was no tear. There was no tear. And she said, I have been abnormal since I was a child. I don't have the normal affections. She said, that's what delayed her from going. She was afraid of facing that reality. And then she wrote and she said, does anybody have a recording of the song, the hymn? And they had it recorded. And she went up into a room and the song began to pray, uh, play and the tears began to come out of her eyes. You see, there's something when God's people are going through the deep valleys, the darkest pains, when together they come and they sing, it turns the darkest valleys into an oasis of hope and of mercy. It doesn't take away the pain, but it transforms you. That leaves an indelible mark upon your soul. And so you look at Psalm 84 as he's doing this. He says in verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, as they go through the valley of Baca. Habaka is the, in Hebrew, it could mean, of, it sounds like of weeping. It, it certainly means of balsams. There's a valley of balsams. It could be a balsam tree, but that means it's in the wilderness. It turns the wild wilderness into a place 
of what? Blessing. The early rains cover it with blessing. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. What is he saying there? He's saying we sing our way home. We support each other on the way home. We go from strength to strength so that each one shows up. You don't do this journey on your own, he says. We need worship. We need other people pointing to the hope of God. We need to have other people announcing the reality of God. That's why we're made in the image of the triune God. Christianity is not an isolationist. Those who believe that they don't need any people in their lives will not make it to Zion. Not the way God intends. We need to help each other on the way home. That's what he's saying here. We, we sing. I tell you this. This is, this is how we help each other. When you go in to the senior's home and you minister to granny in her dementia, she won't hear a whole lot of what you're saying, but you start singing a psalm to her. You read the 23rd psalm to her. And she might not remember you, but you'll remind her of where home is. And the good shepherd who said, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? That's the second section. Strength comes from God and God's strength comes from God's people pointing to God. The last thing in this last section is the satisfaction. So let me give you this exhortation. Keep Peeking at and pondering over what we have in Christ. Now, the reason why I say keep peeking at this is that the idea that uh, one of the commentators said is that the the gatekeeper didn't get to get full. He was he was he was at the door guarding the door. He was at the door serving the door. He would get a glimpse of worship. He would hear the echoes of the worship coming out. He would see the coming and going. And what I think what Spurgeon or one of the commentators said, just get a glimpse of Jesus. Better is one glimpse. Better is one day in your house than a thousand in the tents of the wicked. What's he saying here? The Lord only can do for you what sin and all the power and all the promises of sin can never do for you. So notice what he says. He says, behold our shield, verse 9, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is how you pray as a Christian. In one sense, we are called Christians because we're little Christ, which means we're little anointed ones. But we're saying, don't just look on me. David's not saying, just don't look at me. He's saying, look on Jesus And if God looks upon Jesus and sees us in Jesus and through Jesus, Jesus provides and becomes for for us something that sin and self can never provide. He is, what is he according to our verse? The Lord God is a sun and a shield. Don't you love the sun? Don't you love those sunny days when the sun breaks through? The Old Testament ends with a promise that the sun, right, of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. 
And we will be like that little calf in the spring that comes skipping out of the barn and into the field. That will be the people of God. Jesus is that son. I'll tell you this. How did Jesus become the son in which the blessings flow? Jesus became that son by becoming the curse. He took our curse upon him that we might have the blessings. We get to skip out of church today because he died and stumbled and carried the cross and was nailed and never left it. He took on our humanity and died so that we might share in the freedom of a new day where sins are forgiven and all things are made new. He's our shield, not just our son. How does he become our great protection? He is our protection because he made himself vulnerable. He took on our humanity and and the, and the Jews cried, give us Barabbas. And they shouted, crucified him. They, they mocked him. And Pilate, um, Pilate said, do you answer me nothing? And they took him. And he let himself be whipped. It says he gave up his spirit voluntarily. He took on that vulnerability so you and I will never be vulnerable again. If you are in Christ, if God is for you, who can be against you? He is not only a sun and a shield, it says in this verse, but he gives what? Favor and honor. How is it that Jesus gives favor? He gives favor to us because he took our shame on him. I'm called a son of the living God. I'm a royal priest. We are a holy nation. Why? Because he was considered cursed. He was degraded. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And people mocked him and spit on him. He took the shame and indignity and the ignominy of our dishonor and guilt and sin. He took it. He took your sin. He took my sin. He took your shame. He took my shame. He took that shame and bore that shame. And they hung him on a tree. So you would never be hung on a tree. And it doesn't matter what anyone says about you. It only matters what he says about you. And he says, you are my own my precious child, my beloved. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. He gives glory, glory, glory. I'll tell you what pornography will do. It'll take you down into the ugliest of yourself that you can be. I'll tell you what materialism and greed can do. It'll make you the most self-centered, insecure person you can be. I'll tell you what the approval of your peers will do. It'll make you a dancing monkey on Instagram and TikTok in order to get somebody to love you. It would be better to have one day in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wicked. Why? Because he gives glory. We are being led through trials and the power of Christ so that we might share in his glory. You will one day see that he will make you a version of yourself that you can never imagine being in and of yourself because he finishes what he starts and he will make all things beautiful in its time. Is that good news? Amen. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather dwell in the courts of my God than to live and dwell 
in the tents of wickedness. The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives favor and glory. Blessed is the one who puts his trust in him. Is your trust in him today? It's the best decision you'll ever make. Better by far. Better by far. Let's pray. So our God, we bless you. We trust you. We cry out to you. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Oh, dear God, to be an anonymous swallow or, a, or, or an anonymous sparrow and a resting swallow. Oh, we're running around at Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're fretting and we're, we're flittering here and there and we're worried about this and that. But those who trust in you go from strength to strength. And they turn the valley of sorrows and tears into an oasis of refreshment because of you. You are our bread. You are our water. You're the living water. You give life. Oh, dear God, refresh our souls and remind us today that our hearts were made for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.